Welcome to another segment of BuddyCast. Folks, I'm here with my new buddy. He's, a, he's an original alumni from the Comedy Store in Hollywood. He has entertained our troops in 23 countries with the USO. He's been nominated for the prestigious Peabody Award. He even has an ebook out called Stand Up Comedy Decoded. Be as funny as you think you are. Please welcome the comic in red shoes, Mr. Lou Deck. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you, Nick. I'm excited to be here. Ooh, Erie, Pennsylvania. Yep. Erie, gateway to Bell Valley. Ooh. Yep. The place where you can see all four seasons in one day, and it's still a normal day. (laughs) Have you ever been to Erie before? Uh, I've performed uh, in several places around you, but not in Erie. Um, a lot of times that I avoid going up north once it's September because I'm a southern boy and uh, I can't handle the snow. Mm-hmm. But I've actually so- performed in Bell Valley. That's why I mentioned it. Ah. Yeah. Let me ask you first off, how did you get started in comedy? Well, um, I got out of the Navy. Uh, they paid for the GI Bill. I moved. I grew up in Georgia because my father had taken a job with the Air Force there. And that I moved back to Texas where I was born and um, went to the University of Texas to become a TV major, uh, TV, radio, and film. And along the way, uh, got involved with public access TV in the early 70s. And in those days, we would just hand you equipment and you'd go out and make your own show and we'd show it for you. And then every time we loaned somebody a porter pack, they would bring it back broken. So we started sending out some of our people with each set and we ended up being minor producer, director, hosts. And at one point I had to host for some engineering students taking advantage of a new law, they stole a bicycle and built a windmill on top of their dormitory on campus at University of Texas. And the law read in Austin that if you produce electricity, the power company has to drop a line and buy it from you. So they asked me to host a show and to be real sarcastic. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, "Uh, boy, you were funny. How'd you like to, to host my little show thing? And I went, no, I'm a TV producer. I'm a director. I, I'm a host. He says, I'll pay you 50 bucks a show. And I went, I'm a comic. <laughs> so I literally watched Johnny Carson for a week and stole jokes from comics and Carson mm. and then started started performing. With, gosh. Pandora's Traveling Troubadours. They were a ballet and mime troupe in 1973. So I was the host for them. They wanted me to do five minutes uh, up front, and then it went fairly well. So I started performing around Texas, and then um, again, watching Johnny Carson, I heard about the comedy store in Los Angeles. So literally... I quit college right before I graduated to become a stand-up. 45 years later, my mother's still pissed off about it. And I moved to California. And the second day in town, I got a job as a doorman at the comedy store. 
Mm. And that launched it. And the funny mm -hmm. part was within the first two months, I met three of the guys I stole jokes from. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that started it. Once I realized that I enjoyed it and that I would like to pursue it, I was at the very cusp of the center of the comedy universe in 76. And that then I started, kept getting promotions at the comedy store. So uh, it became a vocation. And then after a while, it became a job. And then after a, way, a while, it became a, a way of life. Mm -hmm. That's what started. Yep. Now you mentioned your the comedy store in your intro and in that story. What was it like working there? What was it like just being there? Well, um, what I had noticed by watching Carson from Texas was the best comics in the world were from New York. But at that point, Johnny Carson had just moved his show to Los Angeles, Burbank, as a matter of fact, and uh, all of them followed. And then the people I would see performing on TV were now asking me where they could park my car and when they were on that night at the comedy store. It was like walking from Nobodyville into the middle of Hollywood. Now, it really wasn't, but to a Texas boy, it really seemed like that. So uh, I don't know if you remember Freddie Prinze, but he was the newest star, and that uh, I'm on the job three days before he asked me if I can get him high and do I have any pot. Suddenly, now I'm on the inside of comedy, and that... Once I started working there, we used the comedy store. This was the Westwood Comedy Store, a smaller venue than the Sunset Store. Uh, about 160 seats. Long room, thin in the middle, but long on, on the sides. And that uh, we used 15, 18 comics a night, and invariably, one of them wouldn't show. So we would grab the next guy and throw him on, and then there would come times when there was nobody to go on. Lou, get on stage. So I, long before I had the abilities or the skills, uh, I got thrust into the spotlight and carried myself fairly well. So that led them to use me more, keep me more, trust me, and after a year or two, they gave, promoted me to the Sunset Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard, mm. where all the big timers were. Now, again, I came in as the bottom of the heap, maybe 80 good comics, and I'm number 80. So I didn't have a whole lot of time. I, everybody, when you do your first audition at the Comedy Store, you're doing five minutes, like a five-minute TV set. I barely had three minutes. But a number of times there was nobody there. They threw me on and I carried my three minutes well and then somebody would show up. So they pulled me off stage and put the regular act on and it looked like I was better than I was. And then the owner of the comedy store saw me a couple of times doing that and then started trusting me. Uh, at that point, I am still the lowest guy on the thing, but I've got some street cred if you know what I'm talking about. And then... Uh, <laughs> suddenly the big timers are starting to talk to me instead of walk right past me. I did not know who David Letterman was, but he was in my face all the time. The same goes for Jay Leno. Now in, in 76, 77, we knew there were good comics, but we had no idea what was coming. Mm -hmm. but, 
But suddenly I went from just being a kid standing on the street to be one of the trusted insiders. And about a year into that, uh, Mitzi, the owner of the comedy store, decided to start video for her chosen few. And it was asked around several directions. Uh, uh, we Nobody knows how to do video. Well, Lou, didn't you tell me you did that in college? Yeah. So they bought some equipment. They challenged me to be able to hook it up in the hallway <laughs> and in front of several comics around saying very sarcastic things. I was able to hook it up and point it at the owner of the comedy store. And she hated that because she had an image and she didn't want to, you know, be on camera. But suddenly I became director of video. Now, when Mitzi wants acts taped, um, uh, I'm the guy they called. Within a month, I get an office, an office at the comedy store. And in later years, because I had an office, people would seek me out to hide in my office so they'd have to deal with the comics or the crowds or Mitzi. And that, that led me to having really close encounters with big names. Rodney Dangerfield, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, uh, Andy Kaufman. Um, Lou, can I hide in your office? So suddenly now I'm on the social inside of it. And that I had never dreamed at that point that it would turn into what it did. But so I got six and a half, seven years of training at the comedy store. And then a headliner asked me to go on tour with him, meaning travel across the country and work his dates. His name was Ali Joe Prater, perhaps the funniest act I've ever seen, even funnier than Robin or Richard or Andy. He was, uh, we, uh, if you could imagine a 400 pound real life Yosemite Sam with a very dirty mouth, but great act. And then suddenly he wants me to tour with him he was so large, he could not drive well. So I ended up driving the cars and carrying the bags and then opening the show. By that time, I had 20 good minutes. But as we all learn, what you can do in the big town, you may not be able to do in the towns across America. It's a common, <laughs> yeah, I love this part. It's a common New York mistake to show up in Hollywood and tell subway jokes. We mm -hmm. don't have subways. We don't get it. So inevitably, wherever you start your career in, you have local references and local ideas that don't play when you're in different regions. So in the first six, uh, that year, Ali and I did 87 towns or different cities to perform in. And I learned to develop wide material that people could relate to. And Ali told me to develop a joke for everywhere else. So after a while, I can do a traveling routine. Last month, I was in Texas and blah, 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 blah. So my material expanded. And uh, I got the, again, uh, most comics get good in their region and then have to learn to adapt to whatever they, uh, they go do because I was in so many towns with a, a great headliner that I got a chance to be on stage almost every night for four years. And we all know the more, uh, the only way to get better as a stand-up is to do it. 
So mm-hmm. instead of that, sitting around the comedy store and getting three 10-minute spots a week, suddenly I'm on 20, 30 minutes every night all over the country. And that started it. Nice. You mentioned people like Robin Williams, you know, hiding in your office. What was it like hanging out with people like that, especially Robin? Robin was one of my favorites. Oh, uh, incredible. Uh, I first saw him at the comedy store Westwood, which is uh, eh, in distance, no more than 12, 14 miles from the Sunset Boulevard. But it's more of a college crowd, less of a show business crowd. And he showed up and nobody knew what it, who he was or where he was from. And he was literally doing a character, a Russian character, that will end up, what, Yakov Smirnov. Would you know that name? I think I've heard of it before. Oh, a, a literally a Russian comedian. And he was doing a cartoon version of this Russian comedian that will show up and become very famous uh, for the first four months. But he was animated. He wasn't standing there behind the micro- microphone. He was jumping around and being crazy. And that what we learn out later was he started in San Francisco as a street mime and then started learning to work off of reactions from people. But A, a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. B, very, very soulful. When he was off stage, he was a completely different individual. Very soft-spoken, very caring Um but still pretty much the funniest guy around. And then very, you know, over about a year, he started dropping the, the Russian character and just uh, uh, becoming himself. Um, we've lost seven or eight stand-up comics, some of them great ones, mm-hmm. to suicide. All of us that have been around a long time have, have circulated the word, hey, bud, if you feel bad, call one of us. We'll do something. And I swear mm-hmm. if I could have talked to Robin that week, we could have saved him at least for a while. But then we learn about depression and what it does to you and that if some, one of us had saved him then, it would have been three weeks and he'd been there again. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the list is long. A uh, comic named Rich Jenny, recently here in Los Angeles, uh, a comic named Brody Stevens, um, Robin. Um, can't think of the guy from Saturday Night Live uh, that used to do the political characters. Uh, can't, but he killed himself. Mm. So at, at one point, Mitzi tries to start a foundation to help comics with emotional and substance abuse problems. And then as that happens, we all start learning about it. And that, uh, uh, again, and I say this with the most sincerity I can imagine, if anyone feels that bad, call one of us. We'll make you laugh. We'll help you realize that it's not as bad as you think you are. There's nothing that breaks my heart more than to see a brilliant comic lose confidence and decide to end it because it's never that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people are subject to that. Some people aren't. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you find I've committed suicide, look for somebody that killed me. I'm not the kind. So we live and we learn. 
you'd be surprised yeah. at what just being on the comedy scene for years and years and years will teach you. Yes. But I got I to gotta say, I loved Robin as a man more than I loved him as a comic, and I loved him a lot as a comic. Yes. During the great comedy strike, group comedy was welcome to the comedy store or right before the strike, and um, group comedy is improv, but we don't say the improv word at the comedy store. We that's our competition. We say group comedy. So during group comedy, I was invited to join. After a while, I was given control of the first group on stage every night. And that uh, one night, Robin's hiding in my office, literally walks up to me and says, keep my cocaine. Everybody knew I didn't drink or do cocaine. So he didn't have to share his cocaine with the other cocaine buddies. And then later, he walks past the stage in the main room on the Sunset Comedy Store, and I see him and go, hey, mister, you got enough nerve to come up here with us new people? And he ran on stage. So I literally got to perform with him for, I don't know, maybe 15, 18 times over the next year. And that what I learned was I know his act. So I learned to ask him questions or set him up for him to be funny mm -hmm. and that later when he is part of the showcase uh, group the comedy store players i'm hosting the room i'm dormant in the room all night and i would walk past the stage and that several times with the big time people he goes sir lou join me so i got to go on and be on stage with the big timers uh simply because i knew how to set robin up but i gotta say the world is a sadder place for having lost him. That mm. I, I understand his medical problem more than I did then, and that I certainly understand that when you start losing your ability to remember what made you important and funny, it can work terrible things on your comedy heart. But there's always a solution. There's always a way out. So... I regret losing my friend. Yes, I feel terrible. He was one of my favorites. He was a true legend. Like he was someone like I remember listening to his album "Weapons of Mass Destruction." Yes, that was. Uh, I was. It was like after hours at one of my jobs. You know, coworker were like cleaning something out, and coworker turned to me and said, "What I love about this album is that he pieces everything together. Like everything follows everything. You know." It's not just like random set, then, hey, let's move on to this. It's like there's the story about the presidents, then there's the story about this country, and then that leads into this topic. And like he, he said, like my friend was like, he was a genius for doing that. Like, I, I agree completely. The um, My favorite is live at the uh, Carnegie Hall because mm -hmm. he did a couple of my jokes. Mm. Uh, Robin, when he, when he got Mork, Nobody could believe that suddenly, you know, you go from making 50 bucks a night to making $5,000 a TV show. And then after a hit to $30,000 a TV show, nobody could believe that suddenly he hit the, the escalator up and was gone. But in the first couple of years of Mork, they literally would write segments of the script where it just says Robin goes off. They did not provide, provide material for him. 
They just provided time for him to go be funny. And, well, a number of comics saw their jokes on Mork and Mindy without their permission. So Robin had a chance to lift a little bit. Some accused him of seedling. Some accused him of just having a fertile mind and that the pressure was so great that he appropriated the last thing he heard. So he literally walked around the comedy store with a checkbook and started handing out checks and saying, I'm sorry, and tried to make good. And then learned what he was doing. Um, I formed a Robin Williams watching society when he first came to Sunset and the five doormen and I would chase him around the various rooms and watch what he did. It took him two months. We thought he was just an ad lib genius. We didn't know what improv was at the time. And then one day he tells the same joke again. Now, I have a very good memory. And I went, oh, he just reached the end of the loop and now is starting over again. So I said, the next joke will be this to my buddy standing around watching. And indeed, the next joke was that. So he just had a much better, bigger circle than most of us. And that at that point, when they start offering you the big money, you have to sit down and write out your set list. You ever see a musician on stage with a guitar, look down at the top of the guitar because he has the next song list? Yeah. The, okay, so comics are like that too. No one walks on stage and ad-libs. Yep. Not, not for more than two minutes. You learn to do your act in a certain order for a certain reason. And Robin's loop was just bigger than anybody else's. Now in Los Angeles, we're kind of like a showcase place. You don't get to do that much long sets because there's so many comics waiting. So if you're going to go out and headline a club and do 45 minutes to an hour, you need a place to practice. And that the great ones are offered more time, but not an hour. So it's harder to develop into a headline comic in Los Angeles and New York until you get on tour and you're given the time, then you start lining up bit after bit. I'll do this one, then this one. No, no, switch the two because one sets the other up. And he adapted pretty quickly. But first off, uh, you got to remember he was a San Francisco comic. And at that time, it was the third biggest scene in the world, meaning that many great acts. So he had to fight his way through that. Then he insisted on not using any contacts or anything and walked into L.A. as a stranger. And his merit carried him up the ladder. But to really get good, you have to take touring spots and go work an hour 25 times to know what to do for an hour set. So I spoke with him a couple of times about it. He would never show me his notes, but we talked about how to line things up. And that uh, when I saw live at Carnegie Hall, I knew he had gotten it. Mm -hmm. but, by, but by then, they were asking him to do movies. If I can get 5000 a week at a comedy club for headlining, I can get 200000 for being in a movie. And that, so then he got Popeye. And um, he switched leagues. He moved out of stand-up into acting, which paid enormously more than stand-up. And that uh, he had all of the 
perfect skills to be a great actor. Now, at one point, uh, well, there was a movie called Moscow on the Hudson. Do you know that one? I think I've heard of it. That, okay, that was literally, he's claiming to be a Russian immigrant that plays music in New York, which was exactly what happened to Yakov Smirnov, who was a cruise ship comic on the Dead Sea in the Caspian Sea on Russian cruise ships and then came to New York and then moved from New York to LA. He's a comedy store guy. But they made a movie and Robin appropriated, or the screenwriters, appropriated Yakov's life. So Robin was nice enough to make sure they included the newcomer Yakov Smirnov in the movie. But then it exploded. Uh, he got a, I believe he got an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. Yes. And that at that point, he had learned to turn the Robin offstage on in front of the camera. And we got to see all of the great skills he had. Just an amazing man, an amazing performer. I miss him every day. Yes, so do I. So do I. Hey, I want to. I want to jump to an. I want to jump to this subject now. I believe okay. you have an ebook that is out right now. Yes, I do. Uh, I have a book called Stand Up Decoded. Be as funny as you think you are. Yeah, tell us now, about it. Okay. Well, Jan Book. Um, let's be truthful. There are talented comics and there are skilled comics. I'm from the comedy store in Los Angeles. We have more talented comics than you can shake a stick at. I am not one of them. I have never been one of them because of my video skills. I was offered uh, jobs working for, uh, casting directors doing movies with comics and, I learned to find out what they were looking for as far as talent goes, but I'm not one of them. I, I use uh, the rules of public speaking and linguistics. I'm a skilled guy. I know what makes a crowd laugh. So at some point I realized that almost every great job I ever got or every opportunity mm -hmm. that I was given, it was because I had skills and I had learned to market them. So my book is about learning to be a skilled comic and that there are stages you go through. Um, and I try to break them down. So I toured from 84 until 2009 Set a couple of records, worked 100 cities a year for seven straight years, and then got married, stayed off the tour uh, a little bit for the next two years, so I missed 100 cities. But when I the marriage broke up and I got divorced, I went back on uh, tour and did 100 cities again. So I literally worked 1,000 cities in 10 years. No one has ever done that before. Uh, they may have done it in vaudeville in the old days where you'd work a town two weeks, get on a train, go to the next town and that kind of thing. But nobody in the modern era, first off, if you have that kind of opportunity, you're making good money. 
And most everybody I know in Hollywood, once they're making good money, gets a big head and doesn't work as hard. Me, all I ever wanted to do was go on stage. I know the way to get better is to work as, as much as you can. And then they kept offering me jobs. So my book, Stand Up Decoded, is the way is what my method was of showing you how to use your skills and personal marketing techniques to stay working. Uh, essentially, in 98, when I came back, I was seeing a lady across the, uh, the big mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains here in Los Angeles, and driving across one day, I have a tour van. The tour van has 400,000 miles on it because I drive everywhere and I can sleep in it. And it broke down on the freeway and it literally in the middle of afternoon traffic, I tried to push it to the side of the road and it broke my back. Mm. So, so I'm off my feet for four straight months. And I took the opportunity to learn to be funny with the keyboard. And I started writing articles for a, a magazine called thecheers.org. And after a couple of years of doing that, we noticed I had uh, every other article I wrote was about stand-up. And someone said, you should put a book together. So my book is a series of 20 articles I had written and published about stand-up and a lesson behind every article. The last chapter of the book is something that no one else has ever done before that I have seen. I have a transcript of my act from a very funny show. I mean, a very, uh, when I say funny, it got almost everything got laughs for the whole, whole 30 minutes. So I wrote out each joke according to exactly what I said on stage and then made a commentary why I did it this way. Now, when I published the ebook, no one had the capacity to be able to do that and include it in the ebook. So I put a that show on YouTube. And my instruction in the book is to read the book, see the jokes, now play the video on YouTube. It's still on YouTube. It's called Stand Up Decoded 100 Laughs. It was a feature set. I ended up doing 26 minutes because we had a guest set, but in 26 minutes, I got 100 laughs. Now, soon, about a year after the book came out, I met somebody here in LA, a fellow comic who's followed my path through video, and we actually sat down and did an audio commentary to that show, and that's also on YouTube under why I did it this way. Again, I've never seen anybody ever do that before. So what I'm trying to show people is how to structure their set, how to take advantage of, well, timing, planning. Um, and then uh, since I'm Mr. Video from the comedy store, I'll tell you, you have to tape six or seven shows to get one you can use. So uh, I carried video with me on tour for three months and end up coming up with one of those sets. Um, I'm very proud of that, having done a couple of things that nobody ever did before. When I first became video guy at the comedy store, 
Mitzi uh, um, was doing the comedy store productions and I talked her into copywriting the comedy channel because I figured it was coming on. Within three years, comedy HBO puts on comedy the comedy channel without checking with Mitzi and we sued them because they transgressed their uh, her trademark. Well, they had to change it to the Comedy uh, Central. And that's what you have today. But that's why their Comedy Channel instead of, I mean, their Comedy Central instead of Comedy Channel. We already owned it and we had started doing business doing that. So again, that's one of the things I can feel responsible for. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm talking about YouTube. I just, uh, I'm very lucky. I have, um, for the for the, uh, an untalented bum like me from Texas, uh, I'm just going to tell you straight out: I'm the luckiest comic you'll ever meet. I'm also the luckiest golfer you ever meet. But uh, the comedy store has a tradition of putting the names of our comics in white print on a black building. And way back in 1988, Mitzi put me on the building, and I was part of the Hall of Fame. And then I went back on tour for 10 years. When I came back, they had re decorated the outside and put a ceiling on and a pathway and covered over a bunch of names, including mine. Well, mm -hmm. that's life. And I've been gone for a while. I understand. Well, last year they put me back on the wall. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on the wall of fame. Uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, they have something called the golden age of the comedy caravan. And they added me to that. So uh, again, a gentleman named Brett Soul in Louisville, Kentucky, was the video guy and uh, audio guy and stage manager for the club. At one point, I say to him, in years and years ago, you should tape all the shows. Well, they started taping on the shows for 15 years, and then the club changed hands and then was closed for a while. And then about four months ago, Brett started his Hall of Fame for that club. And he has put three sets of mine in his Hall of Fame, including one just last week. And I just, uh, I mean, no, it was about three weeks ago, but I, it was a whole show, feature act, uh, opening act, feature act, headliner. And I cut my set out of it because I'm the feature. Because once again, they had told me there was going to be a guest set. So they cut me down in time and I decided, let's see how fast I can go. In professional stand-up, we have something called LPMs. Have you heard that? I have not. Laughs per minute. Yep. Now I've heard of it. Okay. So I work pretty fast anyhow. Now if you tell me instead of doing 30 minutes, I should do 20. Generally, I just cut off the last 10 minutes of the set. But that night, I decided to pick up the pace. So I ended up doing 20 minutes, and I almost hit five laughs a minute. That mean I'm just firing them out there. So that was, I just posted on YouTube last week and that I'm very pleased now. So I have the two sets from the book, uh, that one. And then I have another set. It's called a heckler set because I had a wild audience and eventually all standups need to learn how to use the yeah. audience and stop them so we can do our acts. Yeah. So I had a wild heckler set and I posted that as a lesson on how to do to handle the crowd. 
And if you think that you can ad lib and keep up with a crazy crowd, you're out of your mind. What you do is plan for the moment because there will always be times when you need to control the crowd. Yes. And so I carry 10 heckler lines in my back pocket on every show, literally and figuratively. And that night I spent of my 30 minutes, half of the time controlling the crowd. And I'm nice at first, harder in the middle and ruthless at the end. I've always said to me, a heckler is like a good steak dinner. I don't want to eat too much of it because I'll get tired of them. But boy, oh boy, you mess up my show and I will come after you. Mm-hmm. So after all of this time, I have more experience than any person I know that claims to be skilled because I started at the comedy store, got to watch the best in the world work. Then I went on tour for longer than anybody I've ever known. And then lastly, I had uh, I got the opportunity of doing USO shows for the military overseas. They want to know every joke you do in advance and you're under strict orders not to do any new jokes unless they're approved by the, somebody at the Pentagon. So it was for, I work clean anyhow, but working for the government, you're not allowed to make fun of the president nor America nor uh, policy. And you, I learned to work under restrictions and that evidently they like me so well, I end up having, getting to go to 23 countries. So what a privilege. Now, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the time, so I'm going to take, this is not a long story, but it, it has some depth to it. Yeah, fine. On my second USO tour, we do shows all up and down the West Coast in the federal installations. We did a show at San Quentin, and we're working to... 200 prisoners, and then off to the the right, stage right, there's one guy sitting alone with two guards behind him. After about 15 minutes, I'm doing pretty good. I'm starting to wonder who that is, and I grab the mic off the stand, and I wander over to talk to him, and holy shit, it's Charlie Manson. I'm the fuck out of (laughs) here. But suddenly I realized I'm getting to work shows that other people don't get to work. We end up performing in Hawaii, our first stop at uh, Hickam Air Force Base, where the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And there are literally barracks that still have the bullet holes in in the walls from the fighter planes flying over shooting them. So very historic. We went to the U.S. Arizona and um, amazing. The next stop is in the Philippines. There are more Air Force bases, Army bases, Marine bases in the Philippines than you can count. So we're doing three shows a day, and we were there for a month, moving every day and doing various camps. Now, as it turns out, my mother's father was in the Army, stationed in the Philippines when Pearl Harbor happened. A lot of people don't know, but the very next day, the Japanese attacked the Philippines and started an invasion. Four months into the invasion, pretty much. You've heard Douglas MacArthur said, I shall return. He jumped and evacuated the Philippines, but he left 20,000 troops there. They got cornered in a part of the, the big island Luzon and had to surrender. The biggest American surrender in the history of America. 20,000 Americans gave up to the Japanese. 
They marched them 34 miles through the jungles to the top of the island to, to put them into prisoner of war camps. And it, it's called the Bataan Death March because if you were, couldn't work, you couldn't walk, they bayoneted you or shot you. If you tried to run off the, uh, the path and drink water, they cut your head off. Now, there were 20,000 Filipino soldiers with them, too, and they were treated even worse. So almost 50,000 people started making this trip, and they end up getting to the top of the island with only 20,000. They killed 30,000 people walking up the path. Turns out my grandfather was one of them, and he survived the Bataan Death March. There were three big prisoner of war camps at the top of Luzon Island. And what, five years ago, they made a, a movie called The Great Raid, I think, uh, where it was a bunch of American soldiers freeing prisoner of, of war Americans um, behind the lines. That was the prisoner of war camp that my grandfather, no, was the one next to where my, my grandfather was. He was in a camp maybe 25 miles west. At any rate, my mother got two Red Cross letters from him, and then she never heard anything else. A year after the war was over, she was, got that awful telegram from the De Department of Defense that said he was killed in action, but no details, no nothing. So I'm in the Philippines 44 years later. I'm working all of these bases. As it turns out, our last show before we left the country was at the presidential palace for the then president, Ferdinand Marcos and Isabella. She's the one with all the shoes, right? <laughs> so we're at the palace. We're told to dress nice and to, to don't say any bad words and to keep our show short. And literally, we're in a diplomatic line after the show. And the president, Marcos, walks up to me and says he likes my cat jokes. <laughs> Can I do anything for you? I says, well, out comes a picture of my grandpa. Listen, he died in the war. He was a, a colonel. Um, help me find what happened to him. He gives the president gives me to a general who gives me to a major who gives me to a lieutenant. And a week later, they gave me places to look. On my sixth cemetery, I found my grandfather's grave. And there's a long story behind it, and I won't get into what happened, but something happened between the Department of Defense and the family, so the family was never told. When I checked in and asked them and asked for details, they said, oh, and my mother got $60,000, a purple heart, a bronze star, and a silver star because her dad was quite heroic. Because, and this happened, I got back to the United States after four months and was able to get to my grandmother, his wife. What I didn't know was they were divorced before he went to the Philippines. Grandma said, if you're leaving the country, I'm going to divorce you after having had my mother. So that's where the contact broke because they were divorced. They didn't tell the ex-wife. So I got back to, uh, to Texas in time to show her the, the pictures of the grave. And then uh, they made a big deal of him because he was a major. And uh, then back to Georgia to see my mother and give her the story because I was on the other side of the world telling jokes. That happened for my family. Sometimes you get a message from God that says you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's where I found out. Now, 
the inside part of it was I'm a Texas boy. My parents are from Texas. And this was Major Van Frederick Houston. Sam Houston's great, great grandson. Sam Houston, the first president of Texas for whom the city of Houston is named, was my great, 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 great grandfather. And that I found out what happened to his great, great grandson. Because I'm a comic. There's just no way I would have ever been in the Philippines or privileged enough to have that inside information unless God had blessed me by giving me that opportunity. I've had nine miracles like that in my career, and that was the first or second one of them all. So now, oh, I just turned 68. I've been a comic for 43 years. I'm dedicating my last part of my life to giving back to stand-up that gave me everything I ever wanted. I'm not talented. I could give you the name of 400 talented comics. I'm not, but I'm a hard worker. I'm a skilled speaker, but I learned to be funny. And that's what Stand Up Decoded is about. Sorry it took me so long to get there. No, no, no. That was a beautiful story. I that's love that story on the show. I've, I've, I've got other stories, but yes. when, you, when you get straight with your family because of destiny like that, then that's, that's my absolute best story. I don't care whatever happens to me now. Uh, that I, and that was yep. 1985. Yes. But since then, I've been all over the world. Yep. Let's keep the good feeling going. I ask this to all my buddies who come on the show. Sure bet. If you could have our audience donate to one charity of your choice, what would it be? No doubt in my mind, um, American Cancer Society. Beautiful. My, my, my mother had uh, ovarian cancer in the 50s. Mm. and that barely survived. I'm six, seven years old, so I don't remember much of it, but I watched her suffer the rest of her life and had to adapt. Uh, so I, I, that's my, my, has always been my uh, charity of choice. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you this earlier, not to like switch moods or anything, but you mentioned like the night of just getting heckled and just controlling the crowd. What was that like? Because I always like asking comedians, what's your like best heckler story? You know? Well, uh, hard to say best, but uh, first <laughs> off, it happens. Mm -hmm. I'm, from, I'm from the comedy store in Los Angeles where you are in a, almost a theater-like atmosphere. We don't allow heckling. And on your third heckle, you get a visit from the doorman on your fourth heckle, you get warned on the fifth heckle, you're escorted from the room. Not so throughout America. So yep. depending on the heckler policy, wherever you go, you learn to deal with it. Uh, what generally I don't mind playing with the crowd. I'm an improviser as well as a stand up, but my jokes are my babies. And if you kill one of my babies, I resent it. I resent it. So you kill two of my babies, I'm going to warn you. The old Milton Berle rule was the first heckle, you just notice it with your glance of your eyes and keep going. The second time, you look at them for a second. The third time, you stare at them. The fourth time, you warn them. The fifth time, you come after their ass because you've got to bring the crowd with you. So you allow the heckler 
to stop you from entertaining the crowd. Then when you go get them, the crowd wants you to get them. Mm -hmm. uh, any good comic will develop a series of lines to say. There's generic stuff. There's personal stuff. Um, generally, I will say exactly that. You killed one of my babies, you. I got one. There was one time I got heckled at um at an open mic. I was this guy was just going after everyone almost, but he was going after me particularly. Like I told the joke about how, you know, I hate winter because you go out, you go outside and you know, you you and me, we go out and we step in snow. You you go outside, your ankles get cold. Poor you, you know? Yeah. You gotta think about what I'm dealing with here. I go outside and get blue balled. And the guy shouts out, they were blue before you were born, or whatever. And he's just doing this the entire show. I finally, I look at him and go, sir, I got a question for you. Because I'm a little person, you know. I have a form of dwarfism called hypochondroplasia. So that 50 times, so I don't check. I said, people ask me all the time, how small am I? I want to ask you, how high are you right now? Pretty high. Exactly. <laughs> And then he started to answer, and I'm like, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I wasn't asking about your physical stature. And the crowd just yeah. was like, ooh. So write them down. Have yeah. 10. Always yeah. give them a choice. Every First, get your laughs. When you come after them, get your laughs. But yeah. after, after every three, give them a chance to opt out. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is teaching the next heckler not to jump in. Yes. I have a technique where I go, uh, if the next heckler jumps in, says, heckler number one, you're on hold. Heckler number two, go for it, you asshole. <laughs> I like that. You're on hold. Heckler number three, do you really want a piece of me? <laughs> okay, back to heckler number one. one. Back to heckler three. <laughs> right? All right. So uh, I'd be interested to uh, look at that set. I'm wearing a black and white Hawaiian type shirt with orange tint. I'd be interested to see what you thought about how I tend to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But in the end, my headliners hire me to stop that from happening to them. So I'm fully well able to invent a heckler and jump onto an innocent person and lay into them to teach the rest of the crowd. <laughs> It's, it's not kind, but sometimes you're working for a gentleman who gives you the job and he wants you to clear the deck, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but in the end, you, you need to control your crowd most off. And there's always two or three people at a comedy show, never seen a comedy show. Uh, they need to be educated. And if you do it in a certain way, the guy next in line will duck his head and not play. I'm sorry, sir. We're doing a live comedy show here. The truck pull is on Thursday. Shut up. So, most, yeah, mostly it's a matter of defense. Now, when I'm headlining a show, if you heckle me early, I'll jump on your ass. If you heckle me late, I will play with you until you get tired of playing with me. Mm. I do a thing called the one word story. Let's Okay, let's see. 1051. We got a couple of minutes. Let you and me play. Listen close. You and I are going to tell a story that's never been told before. We're going to make it up off the top of our heads, and we're going to do one word at a time. I do a word. You do a word. And okay. We try to make it, and we try to make it make sense. 
So let's try this. I'm going to tell you that all stories start once upon a time. There. What would you What would you say if I said once upon a time? There was a little squirrel named Bobby. He wanted millions of acorns but it couldn't happen so he decided to steal his brother's acorns okay that's an improv technique called story story what i will do to play in a headliner set was find the person that either laughed the most for me or tried to heckle me. Walk off the stage, grab him by the arm. Physically, I'm a big guy. Physically, pick him up and take him on stage and force them to play with me. Now, he gets to feel the pressure that I feel when I'm on stage of having to produce. He's in my shoes all of a sudden. And the less cooperative he is, the more strength I put on his arm. They start playing. As we develop the story, I will hesitate and somebody in the crowd will yell out a word. I immediately put the guy on stage that's uh, with me on hold and I go out and grab them and bring them on stage. And I will repeat that process till I have four of them there. At that point, I'll take the first person on stage and make him me, where he has to control the story. And I'll go out and sit in his chair and light up a cigarette and put my arm around his babe and drink his drink. I'm <laughs> heckling. <laughs> hey, you're not as funny as the guy in red shoes. What the is wrong with you? <laughs> but you see the lesson? Yes, yes. So in the end... To me, a heckler is like a good steak dinner unless I'm working for somebody who wants me to stop them. Mm -hmm. So I, I have no problem dealing with hecklers more than anything else. Remember, you have the mic. You have, you're more used to speaking in public than them. You prepare for the moment. I tell all stand-up comics, there are certain things that happen in comedy clubs all the time. Prepare for them. A waitress will always drop a tray or spill a drink. Somebody will always get up at the wrong moment and go to the bathroom. Write some jokes for those moments that happen. Mm -hmm. Somebody, you know, uh, for years and years and years, my opening line would be, do I come down to Burger King and fuck up your job? Now I say Starbucks. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of controlling them and giving them a choice to shut up instead of telling them to shut up. You tell an asshole to shut up, he wants to yell at you. You give an asshole a choice and bang him on the nose three times, most of the time he'll shut up. Mm -hmm. So it's a, matter, it's, it's a matter of skill, planning, and inner strength. Uh, yeah. I don't care what your stature is, command on stage. You're the boss. Yes. So I'd love to see, uh, do you have video recordings? Is there a chance for me to look at anything? I do. I'll show you. I'll tell you after the show. If you stick around for a okay. minute. Okay. Yeah. I'm uh, actually, I know you have some more questions. Yes. I'm going to end with these two questions. I always ask these to my buddies who come on stage, just like the charity question. Glad to be with you, buddy. Ask away. Yeah. 
The first one is, in your own words, what does it mean to be someone's buddy? You're there in the good times. You're there in the bad times. You share both sides of the coin. A buddy is someone who knows you and you know him. Give from your heart and they will give back to you. I love it. Love that answer. And now it's time for what I call the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. You ready for this? Yes, sir. What is your advice to anyone out there who wants to be a stand-up comedian? Or better yet, what about someone who is working on stand-up, but they're struggling, you know? They're struggling nowadays. They're doing their, they feel like they're doing their best and it's not good enough for the local comedy club or something like that. First, to be a stand-up comic, you're going for something that's simply impossible. Prepare yourself for how difficult the impossible can be. Second, if you can draw a breath and you're brave, go for it. My, my advice has always been be loud, be brave, be you. Stand-up comedy runs on jokes. Jokes make the world go round. The more jokes you write, the better it'll be for you. Wherever you are now, the jokes you've already written have brought you there. Write more jokes, and in two years, you'll be in a different place. Mostly, it's location. The, the typical way is to get good in your area and then move to larger markets. Uh, never give up, never see die, record every show, listen to each show five times before you perform again. Then take out the ones that didn't work and put more in. Uh, a clean act will work twice as much as a dirty act. Edgy acts break in at the rate of 20 regular comics will break in before an edgy act. There's a market for edgy acts, but it's small. Excuse me one second. Take it down. Who knew? I'm busy right now. Can you call me back? I got to go. You don't have my permission to record me, and I don't need a new auto warranty. Thank you. <laughs> got to love a good telemarketer. Well, uh, I've done as much. I'm faster with my mouth and brain than most telemarketers. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a moment and show you the book again. Yes. Stand up. Uh, if I could tell a beginning comic what to do, I'd write a damn book. It's an ebook, although I have printed copies for, um, for vanity and my family and the handout and show business, but it's an ebook. I, Priced it at $3.99 because I remember when I was early as a comic, I didn't have any money to spend. But the point was, at this point in my life, I have everything I've ever wanted because of stand-up comedy. It's possible, although it looks impossible. It is possible. Mostly it takes inner courage. Second, location, location, location. Erie, Pennsylvania is not going to birth that many stars. Neither is Houston, Texas, or uh, uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. There's a ladder of success that leads up, and some of them are shorter, and some of them are faster. Be aware that once you get good, you need to move to New York, Chicago, San Francisco, or Los Angeles to take advantage of the faster ladder. 
but it all comes from writing jokes. I have a technique or not to me, but it's uh, commonly known that we call it your best five. Find five minutes that every joke works and then put four of those together. You have 20 minutes. You're now a opening act. Put six of them together. You're now a feature act. You don't necessarily need to talk about the same subject for 45 minutes to be a headliner. In fact, if you do, they'll get bored, the audience. So stand-up is made up of a series of hunks. Develop them hunk by hunk by hunk by hunk. And at some point, the more practice you get, the better you get. Uh, dress nice. I'm from Hollywood. Image counts. I don't know. I've seen a number of Zoom shows and a number of uh, uh, podcasts where people showed up with T-shirts and, and holes uh, in their shirt. And I've worked innumerable clubs where they show up looking like dumpsters. They like don't they get jobs do anymore. Image counts. I'm not saying to be formal. I'm saying mm -hmm. to look nice. People pay to see you. They deserve to have you dress up somewhat. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this is what I wear professionally when I'm on stage. I want them to know I tried hard. I have a certain look, but I'm also telling them that I am a certain generation of a certain command. That this is almost uh, the Star Trek uniform showing you I'm from the command structure. So I've maneuvered my image, not be doomed by it. Lastly, if you want it, you can have it. I'm going to give you a quick story to end on. I, I married a police officer that I met on a cruise ship. She told me she 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 did not tell me she was a police officer till we'd had uh, till we slept together, and then I was liked her too much to be scared of her. It only lasted three years, but in the year afterwards, I don't remember it. My heart was broken so badly. I just I, I was I worked a hundred cities, but I don't remember. I was such emotionally wounded. At some point, a comic I know who later became a hypnotist comic said to me, and I'm going to ask you, what do you get when you plant rice? Nothing. Not true. Think again. Hmm. What do you get when you plant rice? Rice. That's it. So you planted rice, you got rice. Are you good? Should you bitch and moan that you didn't get tomatoes? No. Should you bitch and moan that you didn't get money or nobody knows you're famous or nobody knows that you're eight feet tall? No. You have in life the rice you have planted. If you want something else, do the work, plant the right kind of rice, and you'll get it. I wanted to be a stand-up comic. I came to where the center of stand-up comedy was. I worked my butt off. I got lucky. I wrote as thousands and thousands of jokes and I got what I wanted because I planted my own rice. And that's the answer to new comics. Don't bitch and moan. Don't tell me how hard it is. Whatever you chose to do, I chose harder. And let me tell you, if you're not prepared, don't come to Los Angeles. We chew up new guys that aren't ready every day. We have the strongest, best comics in the world here because this is where you take the ladder up.
So that's the best advice I can give any comic is plant the rice you want, work hard at it, you'll get what you deserve, but don't be complaining that you didn't get what you didn't work for. I'm Lou Deck, I'm the comic in red shoes. That's my best advice today. Thank you so much for being a buddy here on BuddyCast. I'll have to have you. I'll have to have you on one of these shows that I do with a magician. Me and a magician do like this co-show together. Love to. Yeah, we do a bunch of different acts and everything. But like I said, stick around for a minute. We'll chat. Before we go, thank you for the opportunity to do this. It's a matter of practice, right? You're giving me the practice to get better doing this. I'm fairly good at video. I'm pretty good comic, but the new mm-hmm. at home shows takes practice. Thanks yes. for letting me get better. Hey, before I forget, I believe you had a cartoon to show us. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, you didn't know the name, but I will tell you the name of a guy named Sam Kennison, a fairly famous stand up comic from the 90s who died. They made a documentary called I Am Sam Kennison and asked me to be in it. It was the dream come true because after I had done my interview, they decided several of the stories I told couldn't be appreciated well. So they made a cartoon of me and this other comic. We're standing behind the comedy store late one night. The owner of the comedy store comes out the back of the door and we hear her being beaten up by another comic and rush over and rescue her. So they couldn't recreate the thing, and they made a cartoon of it. So I literally had the chance to become a cartoon in a, in a movie, something that's me, that's Sam. They made a cartoon out of me rescuing a damsel in distress. It's the dream of every 15-year-old boy in the world. I so, love it. Again, I've been rewarded more than I can tell you. Before we go, I want to remind you that uh, on Showtime on October 4th at 10 p.m. Pacific time, Showtime will offer the history of the comedy store, a five-hour, one-hour every Sunday night uh, show. I'm honored and privileged to be in it. And that, again, that came out of nowhere. I'm almost done with my career, and yet, the calls keep happening. And that if lady comedy calls my whole life, I always answer and say, thank you. Nick, thank you. Simper funny, brother. I love it. Thank you, Leo, for everything. You are, this is a great episode. So, and you're an inspiration. you like it. You're an inspiration to a young comic, you know? You're very kind. I'm, I'm, oh, let me tell you, when you're my age, you're happy this anybody cares. So I'll be able to tell my family who live in Georgia, who don't really believe in show business to watch this. That's a gift you're giving my family. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. To all my buddies out there, thank you for tuning in. And as I end every single episode, do me one favor today, Lou. Go be someone's buddy today. I will. We'll be starting with you, but I'll find another. Sounds great. We'll catch you all next time here on BuddyCast.